is the most demanding environment on earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Wilderness is not a luxury, but a necessity of the human spirit. Edward Abbey. The first hike I did there that was full was the HRP, which is kind of a high route across the Pyrenees. Um, it's about 800 miles and you go from the ocean to the Mediterranean Sea, which in terms of terminuses, finishing at the Mediterranean Sea on the beach in this beautiful beach town with like tons of food options and you can just lay on the beach is a pretty great terminus. Um, and that was the first time I kind of did like a route where this guy um, put together this route that kind of connected some trail systems, but also had a lot of off trail scrambling going across some huge boulder fields, those kind of things. And that was just like amazing. That was my first dabble into routes. And now that's the last, the last two hikes I've done are more in the route category. And I, I think that's kind of what excites me these days is these things that are a little more rugged. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail, Dirtbags and Hiker Trash. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute to help us out. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest, a through hiker and bike packer with a lot of miles under his treads. Welcome to the John Freaking Mirror Pod, Kyle Cleary. How's it going, Kyle? Good. Thanks for having me on, Doc. I'm excited. Absolutely. I love talking to people who have multiple types of uh, adventuring in them. So with you as a through hiker and also a bike packer, I can't wait to hear some of the stories today. Yeah, awesome. Now, 
Kyle, have you picked up a trail name along the way? Because we, we try to go by trail names here on the podcast. Yeah, totally. I, I do. I go by Spoons with uh, all my friends these days. So I got that trail name while I was actually bikepacking through California. And uh, I made friends with someone in San Diego and ended up spending about two weeks in San Diego. And they started referring to me as Spoons because I had a bit of a reputation for losing spoons while traveling. And uh, weirdly enough, actually, in the bikepacking community, you don't really go by trail names. It tends to just be your first name. So it wasn't until about two months later when I got on the Arizona Trail hiking. And uh, the first person I met was actually a previous guest of yours that goes by Nugs. And she was the first person I introduced to myself as Spoons to. And pretty much the rest is history. Kayla Bold, a.k.a. Nugs. Yes. That's right. Yep. Good friend Very of mine. Good. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Small world. <laughs> yeah. Now, I have a feeling that that Spoons is not the full trail name. That's a shortened version of it? A little bit, yeah. So Missing Spoons would kind of be the, the full name. And uh, yeah, the whole the whole idea is I basically kept losing my spoons. And a lot of times I'd end up using two uh, twigs as chopsticks after losing my spoons. So, yeah. Now, how would you, how would you clean the ends of your, your twigs before using them as chopsticks? Um, you would try and get as much of the bark off as you could, you know, even though you don't probably don't have a knife or anything like that, you kind of just break it off with your fingernails and then you use them and then you just toss them into the woods and you find new ones at the next meal when you need them. Biodegradable. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is there an ideal length for a twig for a, uh, for chopstick use? I would say try and find something like a chopstick or like those long handled spoons. Like you're kind of going for that length especially if you got like you're, you know, you're digging down deep into a bowl or something or whatever you're eating. But weirdly enough, since I've gotten that trail name, I haven't lost a spoon. So I think it's good luck. It has moved that aspect of your life into your consciousness. So you're very, you're (laughs) hyper aware of your spoons now. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. (laughs) That or you you have a a bracelet now with a, a, a wire connecting it to the spoon. So it's, it's always in your presence. (laughs) That could come in handy. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, Spoons, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast before? Yeah, so I've listened to a few episodes because, like I said, you've had my friend Kayla Nugs on and also my friend Jackson Wow. So hearing them on your podcast kind of introduced me to it. So I've listened to their episodes and a few other ones as well. Okay, so you're familiar with the format. We do have yeah. a segment towards the end called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. That's where I will turn to you and ask you to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. So don't be surprised when we get there. Cool. Yeah, I'll see what I can come up with. Okay. And of course you can, you can feel free to drop trail wisdom throughout the episode, but you will be on the hook for one at the end. All right. Good to know. Okay. The must bring gear review. Hey spoons. Another feature we've been doing this season is the must bring gear review sponsored by the ultralight backpacking gear company, six moon designs. Here's how it works. If you were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-day week, month hike, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. So Spoons, what do you have to have with you when you're out there on the trail, either through hiking or bikepacking? Yeah, I think, um, you know, even getting a little bit out of the essentials category, what I really value and just never leave at home these days is a Kindle, like an Amazon Kindle e-reader. I just kind of find that as to become an essential piece of gear for me. At, at first, when I started traveling, I didn't have one. And once I got used to it, just like, you know, even if you just read two pages at night before you fall asleep, it's kind of become a pretty essential piece of gear for me. So I, I would definitely say that it's worth all six ounces of the Kindle. It's not that bad. Absolutely. I mean, what an innovation. I've I've read about, I think it was Norman Clyde or John Muir, maybe both of them, 
that, you know, their pack weight was just insane when they're out there and they mm-hmm. would, they would bring multiple books. I mean, hardback books, you mm-hmm. know, pounds, each of them. And, yeah. you know, if they, if they only had the opportunity to have at, to their, at their disposal, what we have, you know, a Kindle, you could carry a whole library in that thing. Exactly. Yeah. When I first started biking, I had a, a physical book, an Edward Abbey book, and it, it just fell apart in like two weeks because it was getting shoved into bags left and right. And, and you're right with the Kindle, it's, it's endless what you can have. And, you know, kind of a tip along with that is, is you can also get your Kindle connected to like your local library and get books through your library. And, you know, even though there's going to be like a time limit on how long you can have that book, um, if you just don't connect your Kindle to the Wi-Fi after having it downloaded, it doesn't remove it from your Kindle. So like your book could have been expired and, you know, due three weeks ago, but if you never connect to Wi-Fi, you can just keep on reading it. So I've been doing that. Mo- that's how I've been getting most of my books is through my library, even though I haven't been in my home state in months. This is going to be an episode because we have just gotten our first <laughs> Kindle pro tip. This isn't even a, a, a trail pro tip, a Kindle pro tip. I mean, Spoons is dropping knowledge here. <laughs> Very specific pro tip. Yeah. Yes. Now I was going to ask you what's on the Kindle and I still am, but you mentioned Edward Abbey. So I want to hear about this, this Edward Abbey title that you had with, with you bikepacking. Um, I think I was reading um, the monkey wrench gang at the time. I had read it before, but there was something about going into the desert. It was when I was bikepacking through California and I was like, I want to read more desert literature. And uh, so I think I was reading that at the time. That is what my physical book was. Yeah. Yeah. That book is iconic. I don't know what it is about that book, but I read that book just a, a couple of mm-hmm. years ago and it really, it stuck with me. I mean, it, I still, you know, occasionally think about some of the characters, some of the events of that book uh, to this day. I mean, it, it was yeah. horrible. That's, I had the same experience. The, the character development in that book, they're so fascinating. And now with how I've been traveling, I've spent a lot of time over the last year in the Southwest and you know, I'm going through these places that Edward Abbey talks about and these little towns and I'm talking about the, the Colorado river and stuff like that. So it's been all the more interesting uh, to read that. And I'm about halfway through the the follow-up book, which is Hey Duke lives to that uh, series right now. So definitely it, it's a good, good follow-up. It's, you know, you can't live up to a monkey wrench gang, but it's pretty great. So Hey, the hey Duke lives is pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. And and I'm, you know, foreshadowing a little bit here, but I'm about to start the Hey Duke trail in a couple weeks. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm brushing up on my, uh, my Edward Abbey literature. Nice. You're beating me to the punch every time. I <laughs> mentioned that the Hey Duke trail is named after a character from the monkey ranch gang by uh, Edward Abbey and exactly. uh, iconic. I mean, iconic book, iconic trail. I've talked to mm-hmm. a couple of people who have done the Hey Duke and it's uh, it is a challenge. Yeah. I'm really excited for it. It's, 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 it's been on my list for a while, so I'm excited to get out there. Are you ready? Are you ready spoons for the Hey Duke? I say I'm pretty ready. I'm I'm not much of a planner, but the Hey Duke I think is no joke. So I've been a little more planning, a little bit more than normal. But uh, I, I'm not. I'm feeling pretty ready. I just got off a different 800 mile desert hike, so I'm feeling pretty conditioned to the desert right now and in the right mental state to take on a trail like the Hey Duke Trail, even though I know it's going to be brutal. Yeah, there are some trails in the world that are pretty well defined, near populated areas that if you mm-hmm. wanted to go into it pretty blind, you, you probably could, and, you, and you'd be all right. The yeah. Hey Duke is not one of those. Agreed, yeah. yeah. I, as much as I'd love to just step on trail and just run with it, I know I should be doing a little research, so I've been a lot more active, and I have the guidebook, and I've read it, and a lot of talked to a lot of past Hey Duke hikers to get info. So, All right, and what are you expecting 
um i'm expecting some pretty magical places like places where you you, you just stop and you just take a minute to look around you and you just kind of like wow when is the last time someone's been here and, and of course the last person that was there was probably a hayduke hiker and there's just something really magical about being in these places that so few people have seen and i'm excited for the canyon walls and and you know doing like multiple day water carries and food carries and just feeling that sense of remoteness is what i've really come to love in these desert landscapes well, I, if I may, I would recommend you listening to the Ginger Balls episode where he did the Hey Duke and talks okay. about it. Uh, epic episode. Um, he shares a lot of information about it, some of his experiences. There's one one particular spot where you know it was pretty plain in in all his research that you know there is a, an escape route out of this canyon and it's, it, it should be very apparent. And it took him two and a half hours before he discovered wow. it. And it was, it was sitting in front of his face the whole time. So, I mean, there's yeah. a, there's some stuff that, that isn't just intuitive. You have to kind of know, know about it ahead of time. So listen, listen to his pot episode. And then also, if you want to reach out to him on Instagram, he he's happy to share information about that stuff. I, I would love that. I wrote his name down. Yeah. Cause I haven't listened to that. And I've heard a few stories like that on the Hey Dick, where you just like the problems right in front of you, but you're looking at all the wrong places. That's right. That's right. Now, did you watch the video, the documentary, figuring it out on the Hey Duke? Yeah, I've watched it a few times. It's it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. 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 I just cringe. Yeah, I cringe at that part where they realized they went down the, the, the wrong canyon and it dead ended and they had to go back another, you know, seven miles or whatever to get back on track. I mean, that's just, that sounds. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. It's so it's, I can imagine that's so demoralizing, but I think sometimes these routes, it's just, you got to go with the flow and realize like you make mistakes, but yeah, it'd be tough to not get down after something like that. After it took you so many hours to get, get there and then have to turn around. Okay. Yeah. That's a cool what video. Do you, what do you anticipate uh, your, your base weight and your pack consisting of for the Hey Duke? Um, I would guess my base weight will probably be around 10 or 11 pounds not including my camera my camera is like a pound but i usually carry that either in a fanny pack or like up on my hip belt um so it'll be something like that it's i, I just got a warmer sleeping bag because i'm coming to terms with the fact that i'm a cold sleeper and i, I just can't be one of these like 30 degree bag guys because i just had so many rough nights in the last two hikes i've done and so i just got like a sleeping bag that's a little bit heavier but i, I think i'm gonna really uh be happy with that decision um, but yeah, and then like water, I'll have a lot of water capacity from what I've heard. I'll probably end up having like nine liters of water capacity, potentially having to get a few more liters if there's a really bad stretch, but there's so much snow this year in Utah that it, it should be a decent year. Um, but yeah, 10 pounds has kind of been the base weight that I, that I float around and really enjoy like any less than that. And I'm missing out on too much and anything more than that. And I notice it. So, yeah. Now, nice. You are uh, among the ranks of myself and uh, Crush, who I talked to just a little while ago. We are we are all cold averse. We don't we don't mm -hmm. want to uh, suffer unnecessarily in the cold. We're thin blooded. Totally. Yeah. When you wake up at four in the morning shivering, it's just like you can do that once in a while. But when it happens consistently, at some point, you just got to be like, all right, I'm going to get more layers and bring more clothes or a better sleeping bag. Yeah. And so, what does the snow portend for? for the Hey Duke and other, uh, Western U S through hikers this year. Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, definitely like, I know everyone's talking about the Sierras being at like near 300% in the South Sierras. So the PCT would be pretty wild this year. Um, and then Southern Utah, last time I checked parts of like the 
Kaibab Plateau, which is like a huge part of the Northern Arizona Trail section and the Hayduke section. I think it's like around 200% snow. And the Hayduke specifically, you go up and over, I think it's called the Henry's Mountain Range. And you go to like 11,500 feet in that range. And that's like maybe 250 miles into the route. So it's still pretty early in the season. And so you're def- I'm definitely going to see some snow there. But the the flip side of the desert hiking with that snowpack is like the water sources are going to be so good this year. Um, just looking at like the the water report and what it's been in past years, I'm anticipating it to be way more like some of those sources that were, you know, unreliable last year are going to be totally full with pools that are holding water from the snow melt. Um, so it'll definitely be colder and some slow going, especially in that Henry mountain range. But, uh, I think it'll be worth it. Some people are pushing their start bake dates back really late, but I, I'm still kind of starting on like a normal start date for Hayduke history just to kind of be like, yeah, I'm going to deal with some snow, but the benefit is it's going to be nice water, plenty of water. What is your state start date? Uh, I'm shooting for April 1st. So, okay. Yeah. While you yeah. while you are starting on the Hey Duke, I will be running a trail half marathon in Southern California. So, oh, awesome! I'll be, I'll be thinking of you. <laughs> I'll be thinking about you. You'll be suffering more than me, probably. I'll just be walking and eating Snickers, and you'll be running. <laughs> or I, I I could be walking eating Snickers too. I don't know. We'll see. That's true. I, I used to be quite a runner and did a few ultra marathons, and there is a lot of walking and running. People don't realize that you do walk a lot, yeah, especially well, on a trail run. Ultra marathoners, they're a different breed, man. I I've done I've done a marathon four times, and mm-hmm. you know, twenty six point two is a long way to drive. <laughs> what I said. I can't imagine going going fifty or or beyond. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I, I've done forty five miles, but and my friends are all like hundred milers, and I've paced them on their hundred milers, and it, it is a different breed. And you really get to see the limit of humanity when you see people after running ninety miles and still getting out there and running. It's pretty impressive and inspiring. Yeah. Have you heard of Kevin Goldberg? I haven't. No. Okay. So Gabe and Kevin they fast pack the JMT. I had them on. They were really fun to talk to. I've had them on a couple of okay. times and Gabe says, you know, doc, I don't know if you realize, but, but Kevin is one of the premier American 200 milers. And I did some research and lo and behold, man, this, this guy is, is no joke out there. He's running the, you know, the Moab and the bad water and uh, just you know, 200 miles. That's wild. And, and people that do those kind of things, they're super humble. And that's why like, you didn't even really realize Kevin was like that, but that's, that's so impressive. It's, it's amazing what people are doing out there. Or just the FKT world is is a whole thing similar where right. it's kind of mind blowing. Now going into the Hey Duke with knowing the snow level, what what adjustments are you making to your gear? Are you bringing anything uh, snow related for safety? Uh, no, as of now, I don't think so. I might try and get like some of the the super basic micro spikes once I get close to the Henrys if it's looking like that's necessary. But I'm gonna kind of just wait and see see how it goes. I think the only thing I'm really going to be doing different is just bringing like uh, an extra base layer sleep shirt. And just that way, if you're wet, if you're cold, you always have like a clean shirt and then put on some sleep leggings and you always have like something that is dry when you get to camp. But um, otherwise I'm not, and maybe I'm being a little naive, but otherwise I'm not bringing a ton of stuff from what I've heard. No one's needed ice axes or anything like that. Or So I think it'll be, be all right. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll see though. I'll leave, I'll leave that to you. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll follow <laughs> up and see how, see how it goes. Yeah, it could be miserable. <laughs> All right. Hey, I love talking about gear. And to help us talk some more about gear, 
It's the hiking pole. We're going to do the hiking pole. And that's pole spelled P-O-L-L, like a survey, not, not like the kind of thing you hold in your hand out there. And this is a seven-question survey that's going to help me give you a score on the sanity scale from one to 100, with one being completely insane, 100 being completely sane. What do you think? Okay. I think I'll probably hopefully float in the middle somewhere there. Okay. <laughs> that's my anticipation. If I were to ask your friends and family, where, where would they put you on that on that scale? They put you right in the middle, or or do they, they have leanings one way or the other? I'd be leaning into the insane side of things. I, okay. I'm a, I'm kind of an anomaly in my friend and family circle. Oh, okay, <laughs> all right. And we're going to get to that in a little bit here. I, I want to hear about uh, your family and growing up. But before we do that, let's do the hiking pole. Um, and let's see. I mean, I'm looking at at your your trails that you've done. I think there's going to be an automatic 20 point deduction because of <laughs> the extents the extensiveness of you know what you've done out there. So your highest <laughs> possible score is 80, just because that's what I think, and I'm the host, and it's my poll. So <laughs> you ever you, you can do that. You have those kind of rights. That's right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So first question, and we're going to make these apply to through hiking. Okay. Not not bike packing, unless. Unless there's some overlap, and you feel free to, to discuss if there is overlap. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you seven questions. First question, trekking poles or no trekking poles out there while you're hiking? I do hike with trekking poles, but I do tend to stuff them away probably more than I should. But I'm always glad that I have them. So, yeah, I'm a trekking pole guy. Okay. And I, I notice with a lot of folks who talk about carrying camera gear, they want to have their hands free uh, some of the mm -hmm. time at least to, to grab those photos. Yeah, that, that's definitely a part of it. It's just like creating the ease. But what I, I'm actually like find it more so that I love the mobility of my hands. I, I listen to a lot of music on trail and I get a little, little dancey sometimes. And just being able to move my arms and kind of dance in that minimal form, it, it, I don't know why. It's just like something that I do a lot. So I, I stuff the trekking poles away so I can kind of wiggle a little bit on trail. A little dancey. <laughs> yeah. Now, Spoons, you know, I'm always on the lookout for the trail name of the episode. You know, I, I've, I've taken this to apply to the podcast here that if something uh, catches my fancy, if if something unusual happens, if there's a particular turn of phrase, you know, that might end up being the name of the episode. So a little dancy. I mean, I like it. It's got a nice ring to it. I think it's that's pretty applicable. There's been times where I'll just stop hiking and I'll just like go into a full dance for a whole song. And I've had some awkward moments for like day hikers catch me just dancing on the trail with my pack and everything. It's it's kind of a problem sometimes, probably. <laughs> now, what kind of dance are you doing? Are we talking waltzes or, you know, two steps or what? Totally unstructured. I'm a terrible dancer. Like, I don't think that just because I, I like to dance, I'm good at all. Like, I'm so terrible. But just if it's a good beat, I'll try and match the beat and yeah, I don't. You can't do much great dancing, anyways, when you have a hip belt on and a you know pack that weighs twenty pounds of food. So you're limited a little bit. Yeah, I suppose if you're not a good dancer and you're at a wedding, you know, there's some pressure when you, you, you when you're forced to go out on the dance floor. But out on the trail, no one's looking. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get on the wedding dance floor too and make a fool of myself. So I I, I love it all, <laughs> wherever it is. <laughs> good on you. All right. Question number two: What's on your feet? Boots or trail runners? Definitely trail runners. Yeah, I've been using trail runners for years, specifically the ultra lone peaks. That's since like 3.5s. I've been using lone peaks so quite a while now. Okay. And how many miles do you get out of those lone peaks? Um, it's I get anywhere from like usually around 500 to 600, but I got 900 miles out of a pair last year, which was surprising and maybe not the best decision, but I didn't get injured and it all worked out. So 
900 so, miles were they were they just barely hanging on at that point yeah they were super flat and the the sides were blown out and yeah it was pretty bad <laughs> just some duct tape involved uh, i sewed a little bit i think with some stitching but it didn't it didn't do much it didn't last long <laughs> all right question number three when it comes to your shelter you prefer a tent tarp hammock bivy or cowboy camping uh ideally cowboy camping and then tent as a backup but uh, yeah i'm a cowboy camper ideally okay yeah. and in the desert i mean how does that go in the desert as a cowboy uh, it's usually the best i mean it's just like the stars are so amazing and the the problem is sometimes you get these windy nights because if you're like in a flat desert mesa or something like so sometimes the wind will get you and when that wind just cuts through your sleeping bag like that that can uh get you pretty cold but but yeah, usually it works out pretty well. I know people freak out about rattlesnakes and spiders and stuff. And um, I, I, I've done some Googling because I had those fears too. And I can't find one real case of a rattlesnake or a tarantula going into someone's sleeping bag while they're in it. They definitely might crawl in if you leave your bag there and you're like, you know, hanging out by the bonfire or something that you come back. Like I've heard about critters crawling into your bags, but I've never had issues. I've had like mice run into me or over me. And that that's not the funnest thing to wake up to, but otherwise it's been pretty, pretty good. Oh, and I did have a tarantula, like a two inch tarantula under my sleeping pad one night. That was a little freaky. <laughs> I think I heard in some obscure story years ago about uh, someone who woke up with a, a rattlesnake cozying up to them, either just outside their bag or in their bag with them. And that, oh. that that has freaked me out ever since. You see, I've heard those stories too, but I've never met the person who it actually happened right. to. Or so I, I choose ignorance in that setting. I think. Yeah. Now, is that yeah. an urban legend, or because it's out in the middle of nowhere, is that a, a rural legend? Oh, I think it's old enough that it's an urban legend. Okay. Still, like, because you talk about it at the bar in town and on the trail. That's what I would say. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's a good one, though. Question, question four, uh, when it comes to sleeping, I already know the answer to this. You've already mentioned it twice. Uh, sleeping bag or quilt? Yeah, I'm a quilt guy for sure. Yeah, once I got used to it, I love it. Oh, uh, you mentioned sleeping bag a couple of times, but you threw me for a loop there. Now you're saying quilt. Yeah, maybe I just intertwine, intertwine them. But yeah, it's 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 been a quilt for the last like six years of my hiking career. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, I probably just use them interchangeably. But yeah, I haven't had a sleeping bag with a full hood in years. Fantastic. Now for our listeners out there who are like, you know, I only use sleeping bags. What is this quilt thing? What is the benefit of using a quilt? What would you say to them? Um, I like the versatility of it. There is some weight savings that you can't like just having less down on your back. Um, but I like the fact that you can like create your own little draft holes. Like if you wanted to, if you just like tilt the bag a little bit, it'll open up like a nice little draft hole down the back of the opening. Um, and then also like if it's a hot night, you can just drape the sleeping bag over you. You don't need to be in it with it like fully, um, you know, buttoned up or something like that. And with a with a full mummy, that's just harder to do. So, and I and I have a quilt that is like stone foot box, so it's not the flat ones, but you can still just kind of lay it on you much better than you could a regular sleeping bag. Okay. Question number five: When it comes to food, are you a stove guy, cold soak, or stoveless? I'm a cold soaker and a little little jar. Yeah. Oh, hey, wow. Let me, okay, hang on a sec. Let me write down the major point deduction here. Yeah, I know that's a bad one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's tough to come back from. <laughs> I think your friends and family are going to be right on this one, Spoons. 
yeah, they can't get over that either. But eating cold ramen and rice, and yeah, that's a tough one to talk people into. Okay, again, for our novice listeners out there and thinking cold soak, what is that all about? How does cold soak work? Yeah, so basically, like if you look at anything in the grocery store that has like um, it's dehydrated, it has like a minimal cook time. Like if you see something that says you know ready in ten minutes, and it's like you're supposed to saute it in a pan. That stuff, you can usually just let it sit in water for like an hour or two, and it'll be to a moisture level that you can eat. It's not going to be warm because you're just putting it in this jar with, you know, whatever your water is that you just filtered from whatever source. Um, Yeah. And so a lot of it's like ramen noodles. You can do instant mashed potatoes. The Nora rice sides are kind of my go-to dinners, Um, stuffing, those kind of things. So you can do that. It's It's just not warm. But if you're hungry enough, it's pretty great. Okay. So now the way it usually works if you have a stove, you 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 get into camp, you uh, break out your stove, you heat up your dinner and you eat it. And you're, it's like, you know, half hour or 15, 20 minutes, half hour, however long, whatever the process is for, mm-hmm. for setting up your, your camp and then eating. As a cold soaker, if you were to get into camp and decide, okay, now I'm going to cold soak, you're talking about an extra, an extra two hours from there, right? So you don't start cold soaking when you get to camp. Exactly. Yeah, you're totally right. You do it like the hour or two before you get to camp. And then that's kind of a huge advantage you're bringing up too, is because like you don't need to get to camp, set up your tent or your bag or whatever, and then start cooking. Your your food's already ready. So the second you're ready to eat and you're done with your camp chores, then you just like start eating some lukewarm food, and it's you know pretty great. You don't have to cook. Lukewarm. I mean, it, it can only be as warm as the air temperature, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah, it's lukewarm might not be the right temperature rating for it. It's it's not great, but you get used to it and. Yeah, it, it's, it has its advantages, I think. I love the simplicity of it. Having to find stove fuel, and the, I hate the sound of those jet boil things, the rocket sound. So, yeah, I like the simplicity. Yeah, you have a rocket sound phobia? Apparently. Well, when you're in these, like, beautiful, quiet places, and all you hear is the birds chirping all day and, like, your footsteps, and then all of a sudden you hear this, like, rocket taking off, but it's just your stove boiling water. It's kind of, yeah, it place. does kind of... Yeah, that's exactly it. Out of place. Yeah. Now, have you heard of a crotch pot? <laughs> I have heard of the crotch pot. Yes, I have not dabbled, but I've heard. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. I think I think it's an alternative take on cold soak. It's a it's another method you could use. Yeah, I think it was started as a joke, and it's like people actually buy it and use it. Like it's a legit thing for some people. <laughs> uh, amazing. Yeah. All right. Question number six: Is life better above or below the tree line? I like above the tree line. I love scrambling and being like up high in boulder fields or exposed terrain where you can kind of see the valleys around you. So yeah, I'd say above the tree line. Okay. Good answer. That's the right answer. (laughs) Nice. Question number seven, what's more important pack weight or luxury items? That's a tough one to say, you know, pick one side because it's kind of a gray area. I think I, if I had to pick one side, it would be pick luxury items. I'd rather have a good time than, you know, sacrifice too much. Yeah. You know? And I'm not out there with a full frame pack and, you know, dangling mugs, but I'd rather someone be comfortable than be miserably light. Have you seen somebody out there with a full frame pack with dangling mugs? I think that's like the classic, like Boy Scout vibe in my head where it's like you see someone and they've got 
the dangling mugs and like they have the full brain of the osprey pack and they have like bags stuffed on in between the brain and the actual backpack like yeah i've definitely i've definitely seen that kind of stuff i think last time was like at the grand canyon i can think of this couple i saw with that and they looked pretty miserable so i wouldn't want to go that far but i, I think having luxury items and things that make you happy on trail are important now spoons when you come across somebody like that do you coach them at all or you just kind of shake your head and say to each their own and let them just live their lives yeah i just let them do their thing like you know i'm just another hiker and and i've had my spectrum of like where i went super lightweight and now i've added a lot more weight in it's like i've been at stages of my hiking weight and backpack system that i would change things if i saw myself now so i think you just kind of go through the the process of it and if someone asked of course i would be honest with them but yeah i'm not gonna i'm not out there uh spraying data as they would say in the climbing world of just you know telling people what they should or shouldn't do spraying data there's another candidate for the episode trail name uh so it's beta with a b oh spraying beta yeah it's like when you tell someone how to do a climb like when they didn't really ask for help on how to do the climb yeah thank you for the clarification there yeah now, do you think that's a, a typical trajectory where someone starts off, you know, heavier than they should be with their pack weight, and then they realize they can get ultralight and they go ultralight and they get to a point where they think uh, they're not comfortable out there as, mm-hmm. as much as they want to be comfortable. And then they, so they kind of bottom out at a, a, a really light uh, base weight, and then they, they add some items back in and get heavier again. Is that a, a typical trajectory or, or atypical? I would say that's pretty typical. It's changing a little bit now that there's so much information out there. Um, Like my buddy Jukebox, who I hiked a lot of this recent hike with, he just got into through hiking like in the last year. And he like before he bought anything, went deep into Reddit and found all the ultralight stuff. And so he started like way lower than I ever would have or most people would. So he kind of had enough information where he could start ultralight. But I'd say from my from my history of backpacking, I started heavy, went really light, and now I'm like in the middle and at a, a happy place. And I think that's the majority historically how it's been done. Got to find your happy place. I like that. Now, Jim yeah, Parks, that's my son's trail name. Yeah. It wasn't, oh no way. Wasn't my son, was it? No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Not as far I as I know. I feel like we'd make that connection already. I think I would heard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's funny. Hey, Spoons, I got to do some math here. I got to put your answers through the John Freaking Mirpod algorithm. We'll see where you come out. Have to uh, see, carry the two. Going to divide by root three. Going to multiply by pi. And we're going to adjust for the pucker factor uh, while cowboy camping in the <coughs> desert. And I come up with a, a solid score of, well, or maybe not so solid. I come up with a score of 41. Yeah, that's all right. That's, that's like pretty close to the middle. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not not upset about that. Okay, so it's, it's actually a badge of honor. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I figured once I mentioned cold soaking, I was not going to be above fifty. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> Automatic disqualifier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, before we get too far down the trail, let's back up a little bit. Let's hear about your uh, your background, where you grew up, what kinds of sports and hobbies did you play, and how did you get involved in the through hiking and bike packing cults? Mm, yeah, cult is probably the right word for it. Um, yeah, like growing up in high school and middle school, I wasn't really outdoorsy in the sense of like camping or anything like that. I played soccer a little bit and I was like a skater. We were my main like hobbies um, in terms of outdoor stuff. And like my sister was the adventurous one who like went camping and like drove across the country and did all the like the classic adventure travel stuff in high school. And I was the more like stay at home, awkward kid. And uh, 
I remember we went camping a few times with my high school. Like we'd go and like rent a campground for my entire senior class. And we would just, you know, be car camping with everything you could ever want in these huge tents and stuff. Um, and so that was pretty much my only camping exposure. And I did that like twice um, with the school. So that was kind of it. And then when I graduated college, I didn't do anything outdoorsy in college, even though I went to a pretty outdoorsy school um, in Southern Minnesota. But uh, I was kind of just like not ready to start working right after college. I had worked the whole th- all through college. So I had some money to just kind of live off of and lived in my parents' basement for a couple months. And I was just climbing around the Midwest and but knew I wanted to do something pretty big. And uh, I'd, I was familiar with uh, the El Camino, the, the, the Christian pilgrimage that goes to Santiago in Spain. Um, and I, at the time, I was exploring Buddhism as, as just religion and the philosophy. And so I just Googled El Camino for Buddhists, and I found this hike uh, called the Henro 88 Temple Pilgrimage in Japan on the Shikoku Island. And I was like, I Googled that, and then literally two days later, had a flight booked to Japan, and for like a month and a half later, and just did like almost no research, which you know was kind of my, my style. But I kind of knew I needed to go on some kind of camping trip before I flew around the world and started living out of a backpack. And so that's when I went and did the spear hiking trail. And so, um, which is in my backyard in Minnesota, where I'm from, um, I did the 260 mile, which is the classic route for that trail. And I was so ill-prepared and this is where I had the big backpack and I like borrowed a tent from my friend and it was a Walmart two person tent. And, and the boots I used were like Timberland winter boots. They weren't even hiking boots, but they were like low cut. So I'm like, Oh, these will work. And I carried 14 days of food, I realized later, because I just, I I didn't really do any research on the Spirit Hiking Trail either. So I kind of just figured bring as much food as you can, not realizing I could have gone into town. And I just thought, and I was miserable, but I had like the time of my life. And so that was my first time camping with since like six years before in high school. And ever since then, like that's been what I wanted to do. And so after the Spirit Hiking Trail, I got my gear a little more dialed in before I went to Japan, but it was still you know pretty heavy that is an unusual story because a lot of times <laughs> i'll hear about people who grew up with some kind of uh, outdoors experiences you know they go camping all the time as a, as a, as a family and then you know, they mm-hmm. hear about this trail like the at or the pct and they would kind of you know live within them for a bit and they get curious more curious about it and then they would do some research and they would plan and they they do this it sounds mm-hmm. like you, know, you didn't have a whole lot of of outdoor experience and mm-hmm. you just uh, searching for 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 buddhism and and the the santiago you come mm-hmm. up with the henro and then that that seems like a huge leap then to do a 260 mile hike in preparation for the, the Henro trail in Japan. Yeah, it is pretty odd. The fact that like what got me into backpacking was like practical. Like all I I was trying to go learn about Buddhism and then I was like, well, I have to learn how to backpack too. And the next thing I know, I just like love backpacking. Um, but yeah. And yeah, the first, the superior hiking trail was, was miserable and amazing all at the same time. Like I made, I had blisters like crazy and, the shuttle driver that I hired to bring me up to the terminus. He tried to talk me out of starting the hike because it was such a muddy season. And he said like, Oh yeah, everyone else is like canceling their hikes. And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm already here and I don't work. So I might as well do it. And I didn't meet a single other through hiker. And it was just like the most amazing experience. And like, even though I was miserable, I just loved it. And the rest is history really. Now is through hiking a popular Buddhist pastime? 
Uh, I guess. I mean, it, it, you know, this this hike I did, it's like 1,200 years old, this pilgrimage. And so, I mean, where's the line from pilgrimage versus through hike is kind of a gray area. But I think if you add the religious element to it and you, you're going to these, this hike specifically, you're going to these temples and you're meditating and you're doing mantras and there's a whole ritual behind the the walking and visiting these 88 temples. I feel like when you throw that in, it falls more in the pilgrimage category, but they're both just walking, you know, whichever way you do it. That's interesting. The, the, the Camino de Santiago is a Christian pilgrimage and the mm-hmm. Enro trail is a, is a Buddhist pilgrimage essentially. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. And they call them sister pilgrimages. So if like there's a museum at the end of the Henroad or the, the Henroad trail that I did, and it talks about like, um, they call you a double pilgrim if you do both these hikes, even though, you know, they're obviously very different religious structures and beliefs, but they have, they recognize that they're relatable in a lot of ways. So that's why they call them sister pilgrimages. And, you know, they'll call you a double pilgrim if you do them both. It's pretty, it's pretty cool history. A double pilgrim. Would that get you anything special at Starbucks? <laughs> no, definitely not at Starbucks, but you do get a certificate when you finish the Henry trail and like a little pin and stuff like that. So that's kind of cool. And uh, at eight, at each of the 88 temples, um, you get a signature from the temple as like proof to that you went to these temples and in the Buddhist culture, it's like a very sacred item. If you get a book full of all 88 of those. So I, I have a full book and even though I don't practice Buddhism much anymore, like it is a very cherished item of mine just because of, you know, the history of walking there and it's, they sign them in these beautiful like calligraphy lines and, you know, I don't speak Japanese or can't read it. That's for sure but it's just like a beautiful piece of artwork the way they signed at each of these temples and each one is different. And, and was it a Buddhist monk that signs them? Um, monk might not be the right word, but a temple worker, they they would have monks on site, but there was also like these volunteers. Um, and I think it might've been more of a, a temple worker most of the time. Some of the time it'd be monks because some of these temples were way out in the middle of nowhere. And there's like, you know, just like two people that live there full time and manage it and they're monks for sure. So yeah, that, that has me a little bit concerned, Spoons, because I, I know that if, if a monk signed every single, every one of those eighty-eight, I could be, you know, assured that they're, they're signing for the for the temple. But just a temple worker, I mean, do you think anything <laughs> might be inappropriate in there? He might have, might have, you know. Uh, yeah, they they might mess with this American, and then I'd be like, oh, let's, <laughs> let's write something embarrassing, and he'll never know, which I wouldn't. You know, ignorance is bliss. Right. Yeah, it's certainly possible. Yeah. I've, all, I've I've said many times that if ignorance is bliss, I'm one of the happiest guys on the planet. So mm, I agree with that. Yeah. So 88 temples. What is the distance between the temples? What was, what's the distance, complete distance of the Henro Trail? Yeah, the, the total hike in miles, I think, is like 850 miles. Um, and you circumnavigate the Shikoku Island, which is the smallest of the islands, the four islands that make up Japan, the four large islands. Um, and so you circumnavigate that um, 800 miles. And it's really variety in terms of how far they are. I remember there was one and it was maybe like 40 miles between the temples, but then there's other days where it'll be like two miles and you might go to four or five temples in one day. And like some of these temples you can stay at, some of them you can eat at. Um, So yeah, it's a really, it's really interesting experience. But yeah, some of them, I remember the longest one I think was two days apart. So that was probably like a 40 or 50 mile section between the two temples. Okay. And of those, uh, 800 plus miles how many nights did you spend camping in a tent versus you know staying either at the temple or in some hostel mm-hmm. yeah so it's a pretty interesting hike in the sense that like the locals have a lot of infrastructure around it 
it is absolutely a road walking hike. Like now I would never go back and do it. And I would never recommend it to any of my through hiking friends. Cause it is like 90 to 95% road walking, but you're in a foreign country. There's all this amazing culture. So it has its perks, but they, what they have there is they, they have these, they call them Henro huts. And it's basically these huts that just the locals build for Henro walkers, the hikers. And, um, you can just, they're totally fair game to take a break in, to sleep in, so a lot of times I would just set up my tent in those little huts because I knew it was a place that I was allowed to be. And I mean, Japan has like the lowest crime rate of any developed country. So I slept under bridges and like in random places and had no issues or no concern. But um, so I would say I was on a budget. I was living pretty cheap there and Japan's not the cheapest country. So I barely stayed in hotels. So I would say, you know, 80% of the nights I was sleeping in my tent in one of these Henro huts. And then like, 10 to 15% of the time I got invited to stay with people like just ran people would pull over on the side of the road and give you fruit and vegetables and buy you lunch and invite you to their house. And it was a really cool cultural experience. And that was in like 2017. So it's gotten a little more popular. So it might not be as um, novelist novelty anymore when they see a walker, but it definitely was a big deal back then when I was walking it. Yeah. There's some parts of the U S and, and the, or the rest of the world where I, if someone pulled up and offered to have me spend the night at their house, I'd be a little concerned, but uh, <laughs> I guess it was pretty safe there. Yeah. Yeah. Japan is, is incredibly safe and and it, there's because it's a Buddhist culture, they have karma, they believe in karma. And so there's a lot of, they want to give karma to the, the pilgrims. And so, yeah, I felt super safe. It's a good experience to go. And I didn't speak any Japanese at all. So I still felt fine. Nice. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from the sponsors. Come back. We're going to get into some of the nitty gritty of your, your other through hikes and some bike packing. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water, using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at jollygear.com. hiker owned Jolly Gear, where fun meets functional. Want to make a podcast? 
Spotify has got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your pod- podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. And welcome back. We are talking to Kyle Cleary, a.k.a. Missing Spoons, a.k.a. Just Spoons. I think having a short trail name is advantageous. I agree completely, especially if you get in like a risky situation and you like you, your friends need to yell at you real quick. I think I think it pays. Yeah. Yeah. If there's yeah. too many syllables, I mean, you're a goner. So, <laughs> yeah, totally. Nice. Now, before we went to break, we, we talked a little bit about your experience on the Superior Hiking Trail and the Henro Trail. Any other stories from the Superior Hiking Trail? That sounds like it's rife with opportunity for type two adventure. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. I mean, that was like my first time camping alone. And I remember just being terrified of like black bears and cougars. Um, and I just remember how messed up my feet were specifically. And I, I remember feeling like I was, cause it was muddy. Like I said, the, the, the shell driver was trying to get me to quit my hike cause it was so muddy. And so my feet were in this like constant state of being wet. And I was actually worried at the end of the 10 days of like being in the early stages of getting trench foot. Cause it was so, there's so much moisture in my feet and I like, I couldn't walk for like two days after I got off that hike. I was, I was in rough shape. Um, and then carrying 14 days of food, I would never recommend it. It was miserable how heavy my pack was. Yeah. How long before you made the adjustment to go from boots to trail runners? Um, I did the Henro trail in boots, which was a terrible idea because of how much pavement road walking it was. And then I think, so it was probably like about a year after that. And that's when I started running, trail running a lot. And so that was kind of my introduction into the trail runners. And then it was like, well, I might as well use these also while hiking. Yeah. And you mentioned trench foot earlier. Um, <laughs> do you know where trench foot got its name? I don't know. So in World War One, they fought in trenches. It was trench warfare where, you know, the, the front lines were trenches. They built these trenches, mm-hmm. they these trenches and, and, and kind of poked their heads out of these trenches and shot at each other. But those yeah. trenches, when the weather went bad, you know, they filled with water. Uh, and you're so, just standing in it. And you're standing in it. And so your foot would be wet all the time for, for multiple days, weeks, and uh, you would get trench foot. And it's this condition where the skin would just slough off of your foot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why I was afraid of it. My feet looked pretty rough. And it was, I was in mud pretty much all day on that hike. It was, it was a bad July in Minnesota. And so, yeah, it was mud and bug season. Yeah. Mud and bug season. A bad season in July. In, uh, how was that again? Bad season in July. So, in it was like a really bad mud season in July season. in Minnesota. Yeah. Specifically. I was thinking maybe possible trail name for the episode, but that's too, too many words. So, discard <laughs> that. Just like, just like our philosophy on, you know, short trail names for, for hikers. So, 
Yeah, you got to cut it a little bit. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, yeah. in preparing for this episode, um, I asked you to give me a list of some of the things that you've done. And you gave me quite an extensive list. We've, we've got here the Centennial Trail in South Dakota. We've got the Isle Royale. Royale? Royal? Isle Royal? Royale, I think, is how you say it. Yeah. 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 Michigan. It goes back and forth. Yeah. Isle Royale, Michigan circumnavigation, bikepacking mm-hmm. from LA to Baja, the Arizona mm-hmm. Trail. The HRP, which is the uh, high route, the Pyrenees high route. Yep. The, yeah. On like the Spain-France border. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Hout route. Where, where's the Hout route? Um, so it starts at Mount Blanc in Chamonix, France, which is like that famous ultra running. And, and mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people do the Tour de Mont Blanc. And it mm-hmm. does about two days on the Tour de Mont Blanc. And then it breaks off and goes into Switzerland and does its own route that go ends in Zermatt, which is another like historic um, uh, Alps climbing area. Um, so that's where it ends. It's about 150 miles, I think. Okay. Total hike. And then we've got the Grand Enchantment Trail and the Winter Through Hike, which you have just finished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like three days ago, I got off that hike. Yeah. So we've got a lot of domestic and international uh, experiences here for you. Let's... Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of pick and choose what we talk about here. What are, what are some of your, your best experiences, best stories? What do you want to share with us today? Yeah, no, yeah, you're totally right. I've kind of had the contrast of like doing some international stuff and some local stuff. Um, I would say like the IRL in Michigan, um, it's technically like it's considered Michigan owns the, the Island and it's a national park. And it's, if I remember the stat correctly, it's the least visited national park but it's the most revisited national park so for people that have been there they have the highest rate of revisit of any national park and i'm not surprised why because it's really beautiful you do have to take like either a ferry or a float plane to get there and it's like 13 miles off the minnesota coast which is why it's weird that that michigan technically owns the island but um and on that island it has the largest per acre population of wolf and the largest per acre population of moose so it's this really interesting place where the university of michigan studies predator prey relationships and how they affect each other and they have just world-class hiking trails there Um, i think there's like over 250 miles of trails on this island and uh so i kind of just put together this circumnavigation loop of the island and i think it was like 110 miles total and it's it's a really beautiful place it's yeah, it's a, it's a special place that I think is really underrated. And if you're in the Midwest, it's worth visiting. So I like I like the fact that you said it's the least visited national park, but most revisited. It's kind of like the mm-hmm. Subaru of uh, hiking trails, hiking locations, <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't think necessarily that Subarus are, you know, the most popular cars out there. But if you're a, a Subaru, Uno, Subaru owner, I mean, they hang on to their cars forever. There's yeah, not a lot I'm in that category. Subaru is yeah. out there up for sale. Yeah. Subaru is my first car and it was the car I owned before I sold it to travel. So yeah, I love Subarus. I'm, I'm part of that for sure. Same here. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a Subi owner as well. So. Nice. Yeah. Now, um, with, with the wolves and the moose, I mean, it one-on-one wolf versus moose who wins. I mean, if you're talking about a full grown moose with a male moose, they are scary. I saw a few of them and they they'll stop you in your tracks. I think I think it, I don't think a moose could really kill a wolf, but I think they would defend themselves to the point where the wolf would get away. But I've seen the footage of the wolves teaming up on these moose, whether it's like a mid sized moose or a young moose. And 
you know, they definitely come out on top and that's their main food source is these moose, but they usually don't get the full grown males unless they're, you know, injured or old. Yeah. I don't think people, people who aren't on the, out in the wild, haven't seen them firsthand. They don't realize just how large an animal Mm -hmm. grown male moose is. Yeah. They're, they're so large. And when you hear them walking, that was what surprised me is just like hearing them walk is like thumping. It's so loud. Yeah, and you hear them just breaking through trees, basically, that I would have to walk around. Now, were you cowboy camping out there? Uh, I think so. I think I had a tarp set up, but um, I don't think I used it much. And that's a funny park in the sense that, like, that's where if you go to RL, you're going to see people with the dangling mugs from their huge backpacks. It's a very, for whatever reason, there's certain areas that just attract, like, the old school huge packs and that that island i was the weirdo like people i'd come into camp at like eight o'clock and people were like who are you where'd you come from and i remember the ranger when you get there you have to tell them like where you're camping for safety reasons and he actually just didn't even believe me that i was going to do this circumnavigation and how many miles a day and so because like to him like you can't there's no way you can hike more than 10 miles or 15 miles and i was doing like 25 miles a day and so i ended up lying to him and just telling him a totally different itinerary because he, he didn't he just didn't believe me and so but I got away with it. It all worked fine. You you told him what he wanted to hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he, he didn't think it could be done. <laughs> I didn't, And then I didn't go find him and try and rub it in his face or anything. But it's like, you know, there's a lot of different ways to hike out there. So with this high density of wolves and moose, any animal encounters out there? Uh, I definitely heard the wolves like every single night um, and then had quite a few moose. And then I had a really close, cool encounter with a fox. I think he was pretty conditioned to being around humans and it has probably been fed a few times. So he got really close to me. Um, so that was cool. But yeah, there was one moose encounter, huge horns and everything came around a bend and he spooked me for sure. And and he ran off thankfully, but I was, that could have been a uh, standoff to some regard. Now I know that with a lot of bears, especially like black bears or brown bears, they, they will, you know, avoid humans. If you make enough noise, you'll make noise on the trail. They'll, they'll kind of avoid you. Is that typical mm-hmm. with the moose as well? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really want to mess with you and they're kind of doing their own thing. And I don't know that they use the trail system that much, you know, how like, like mountain lions and stuff, they'll walk on the trails. I don't think moose really do that. Cause I think they're just too big. They kind of just do their own thing. They make their own trails. Yeah. Yeah. Even though the trails there are really great and wide on that Island, but yeah. So maybe there is some method to the madness of carrying your, your cups on the outside of your pack because they make noise and they kind of clank against your pack. You you don't want to surprise a large animal out there. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that, but I've also heard like the bear bell thing, like doesn't really work that well, actually, like it's kind of a gimmick, but it definitely, any kind of sound you can make, I think is an advantage in those kind of trains, whether you're in Grizz country or high density moose country. Have you yeah. been in grizzly country? I haven't. I, you know, again, foreshadowing a little bit, I'm going to do the CDT this year and that'll be my first time in grizz country. So basically going from never being in grizzly bear country to, um, like doing like over 1500 miles in grizzly country on the CDT, but plenty of time in black bear country. I've had black bears steal my food in the middle of the night and like on canoe trips in the boundary waters in Minnesota and stuff like that. But um, yeah, black bears don't really freak me out at this point. Spoons, you got a busy year ahead of you. You're doing the Hey Duke and the CDT. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna be pretty burnt out at the end of this year, I think. But yeah, it's it's definitely a big year for me. And yeah, 
All right. Yeah, you want to be a trail, a trail correspondent for the podcast? We, we have you come on, uh, check in from the trail and uh, tell us how it's going. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would tell you that. It'd be fun. Fantastic. Yeah. Any cell reception out there on the Hey Duke? <laughs> I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> if I'm lucky, not. I try and just keep the phone off until you hit town. But um, yeah, I got to imagine those slot canyons and narrow canyons that you're not getting any service. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. But, hey, do we want to take a break from through hiking and talk about this bike packing trip from LA to Baja, Mexico? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's that's a whole other world that I, right. I've played in a little bit. So yeah. similar mindset between through hikers and backpackers? Uh in some regard, yeah. I'd say like you have a different you have a few different kind of categories with the bike packing thing. And like bike packing usually implies like these lighter weight bags. And so that's a lot more similar to the through hiking world. But then you have like the old school biking and that would be called like bike touring. And that's where you see like the people with like the four big pannier bags and stuff like that. And that's a little more luxurious and a little harder to relate to through hiking, I'd say. But yeah, I was definitely in like the bike packing category and I was riding like um like a 2.8 inch mountain bike. So I was more on like dirt roads trying to stay off the pavement and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, so so I when I left my job and started this traveling that I've been doing for almost a year and a half now. My initial plan was to basically ride that bike all the way from LA to Ushuaia, South America, which is the southern tip of South America. And so that was like my dream for a lot of years when I was working. And then I did about three months of that bike pack from LA. I spent like a month in California. And then I rode all the way down the Baja Peninsula on this route called the Baja Divide. That's um, kind of a semi semi-popular dirt traveling route through there. And I was kind of sick of it at the end of it. I really missed through hiking. It, it, it just didn't give me the same itch that I had gotten on the spear hiking trail and on these other hikes that I had done. Um, so I kind of pivot, did a huge pivot and ended up selling the bike and have been on foot ever since. And that's when I went to Europe and did all this stuff in Europe, the HRP, those kind of things. And sometimes I get the itch to get back on the bike. But all in all, I think through hiking is kind of what's been calling my name recently. Got it. Have you ever heard of Lael Wilcox? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she's the co-creator of the Baja Divide route I just I, mentioned. I was, yeah. going to say, you know, I, I talked to her on the podcast here and I know she she did some trail creation down in Baja. I was wondering if that was if that was the trail. That's super cool. Yeah. And she's when I was on the Arizona trail hiking that she was doing her FKT on that. Um, yeah. So I'm very familiar with her. She's total badass. Crazy. Yeah. And she put together an amazing route. I Yeah. We, we had a joke on that route because it was her and her partner at the time, Nick, that put it together. And so whenever the route was bad, you know, if it was like washboard roads or rough terrain, we'd be like, oh, Nick must have planned this section. And then whenever it was like beautiful, perfect dirt roads with a nice view, it was Lale. That was the one. We were like, oh, thanks so much for putting together this route, Lale. <laughs> so we gave her a lot of credit for the good times. Yeah, as you should. I mean, she truly is a badass. You stole my word yeah. from me. <laughs> yeah. She tells an incredible story of when she did the Transamerica race, um, started from the from Oregon and ended up in Virginia. And she uh, caught the leader at the time, the favorite to win the race. Some some guy from France, I think it was, caught mm-hmm. him like 100 miles from the finish line. And she ended up just putting him in the rear view and she won the race overall, you know, all, you know, male, female, whatever. Yeah. And that's so cool. Completely awesome story. Yeah, she's shredding some records for sure. But but yeah, I mean, that's a great route. And I really did enjoy bikepacking. And there's some huge perks to bikepacking. Like, like you can bring so much more food. 
Um, I had a stove when I was bikepacking most of the time and you can just like, you, you're going to town like every day basically, or a tienda as they would call it in South America in Mexico where you can get like fresh vegetables. And I was just making these tacos with tons of fresh vegetables every day. And so I really enjoyed the food side of it, but, um, the bike seat is a real problem of mine. I hate the bike seat. You, you spend 10, 12 hours a day on that seat and the, you just can't, can't get, can't have a good day after that. It just, it just drives me nuts. And so things like that just bothered me. And it wasn't as simple as backpacking. It's a little, a little simpler to be out here and just have your little tube backpack. You just stuff everything in. So a couple things there, you, you rejoined the hot food community, uh, in the <laughs> bikepacking world. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like situational, but, um, I did enjoy like in normal life when I'm not hiking or traveling, I, I eat a lot of really good vegetables and like trying to eat low, you know, a ton of sugar and stuff like that. And so I love being able to cook and make fresh rice and boil, you know, you know, vegetables and things like that or saute things. And so the, the bike packing, cause weight isn't as much of a concern cause you have that momentum on your side. So you can bring a lot more of that kind of stuff. And so I did enjoy that. Now, Spoons, if you're committed to cold soaking on the trail, I think you should be committed to cold soaking in real life. I mean, I think you should be, you know, soaking your your potatoes or your your ramen for a couple hours before dinner time each night uh, while you're in your, yeah. in your house. Uh, I'm just not that loyal. No, I mean, so I'm <laughs> I'm in a nice nice house in the Burbs right now, of Vegas, and I've like this today for lunch. I had this huge vegetable salad, and it's like all that I wanted. So no, I'm taking a break from the ramen. I'm taking a break from the north side because I know in like two weeks on the Hay Duke, I'll be right back in that stuff That's and eating right. Snickers for breakfast and whatever. That's right. And with the bike seat, I mean, you could always do what Lael did. She told the story of where she broke her seat. And she was 50 miles from the next town. And so she just rode standing up for the next 50 miles. Dang. Yeah. That's, that's the one <laughs> way to do it. My, your knees might not like that at the end of a couple of days though. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. But, All right. So yeah, let's the, talk about those international experiences. So you, you put the bikepacking in your, in your rear view and you're back on foot and you head mm -hmm. over to Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Europe was really interesting. Um, I had a family obligation that um, I, that brought me to Ireland initially. And so I spent like a week traveling with my family in Ireland. And then I'm like, I'm in Ireland. I'm, I already flew over the pond. I might as well stay here. And that's when I started doing research on um, some of the hikes over there. And so I spent some time up in Scotland, did some hiking there, but I got injured. Um, I was trying to do the Cape Wrath Trail. Um, and that's a whole, whole burly trail. But what I, the first hike I did there that was full was the HRP, which is kind of a high route across the Pyrenees. Um, it's about 800 miles and you go from the ocean to the Mediterranean sea, which in terms of terminuses, finishing at the Mediterranean sea on the beach in this beautiful beach town with like tons of food options and you can slay on the beach is a pretty great terminus. Um, and that was the first time I kind of did like a route where this guy, um, put together this route that kind of connected some trail systems, but also had a lot of off trail scrambling, going across some huge boulder fields, those kind of things. And that was just like amazing. I, that was my first dabble into routes. And now that's the, la the last two hikes I've done are more in the route category. And I, I think that's kind of what excites me these days is these things that are a little more rugged, some off trail stuff. You got to pay attention to navigation, your, your food, your water, all has to be a little more dialed in. So you're a little more engaged than just like walking a single track for 800 miles. And I really enjoyed that. Okay, so there is a di definite distinction between trails and routes. Mm -hmm. Trail, well-defined, never really, you're never really doubting where you are. You, you, you pretty know when you're on trail, 
right? It's it's mm-hmm. well marked, well defined. Route is a different story, though. Yeah, totally. I'd say on a lot of routes, um, you are spending a fair amount of time kind of knowing where you are, but not knowing exactly where you are. And, and you can download these routes. They do have like GPX tracks and stuff like that. So you can follow a line, but you're still a lot of the times being like, okay, I know I need to go from here to that canyon or that pass. And you kind of just make your own route that looks like the least, you know, resistance because there's no trail there anyways. So why try and follow someone else's line? Just kind of do it, whatever you want and what makes sense. Um, and so I, I do really enjoy that aspect. There's a certain wildness that comes with that, that is tough to find on like a national scenic trail, like the Arizona trail where there's a trail marker every, you know, whatever hundred feet. And there's these towns that everyone knows who you are because you're, you're, you know, you're just another Arizona trail through hiker, but these routes bring you to some towns that are really interesting in the sense that like, they don't really know what you're doing. They've never heard of the HRP or the GET or the winter through hike, the other routes I've done. So I kind of love that fact that you go into these towns and they just like see you with a backpack. Like, what are you doing? Like, I don't know. Uh, th- they don't have that point of reference that you would see in like a trail town on the PCT or the Arizona trail. Right. So the Hey Duke, definitely a route from, from all that I've heard about the, the, mm-hmm. hey Duke. I mean, you're, you're finding your way out there a lot of the time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's definitely a route. And then the GT, the Grand Enchantment trail is the other route that I did. Um, after coming back from Europe last fall. And um, I did that with my hiking partner, Flo, and we didn't see a single other through hiker. And we went into these towns and like people would just give you rides out of the kindness of their heart and they had no clue what you were doing. And um, I just kind of loved that trail experience of being like going through like an old mining town and people are just living there and they're like, oh, I didn't even know this route went through my neighborhood and went through this area. I'm happy to help hikers out and give you a ride and stuff like that. And just met the nicest people, especially in New Mexico. The people of New Mexico are like my favorite. They they were so friendly. So the Grand Chairman Trail, about half that goes through New Mexico. And that was amazing. You know, when you think about America, I mean, I think what most people think of is the big population centers, you know, the big cities, mm-hmm. Los Angeles, Dallas, New York, wherever, San Francisco. But there are a lot of rural spots in in the United States. I mean, there's a lot of small population centers. What is the most oddball small town that you've you've come across in your travels? Uh, I was just at this great example of this. It's called Amboy, California, and it's an old Route 66 motel. And it's kind of famous. It's been in like a bunch of movies and music videos, I guess. It's called Roy's Motel. And um, it's got the classic like Route 66 sign and the old drive-in motels. It's kind of kind of abandoned but they're like refurbishing it and there's a little convenience store there and there's this character that worked behind the the counter and he let us mail boxes there because there wasn't really enough food to actually resupply um and so this was the last town on the winter through hike that i hit and there's this guy that works there his name's ken he's from 29 palms which is like an hour away from there and he's lived there his whole life and he has the most amazing history and so we're sitting there drinking coffee for like four hours with this guy just chatting hearing about the history and Amboy is like this small town that this this billionaire who owns like a chicken franchise purchased. And it's like he owns the whole town. And there's only one person that actually lives in the town. It's not this Ken guy. And so it's just like the weirdest, quirkiest little place. And they have like all these like fancy root beers for whatever reason. So Amboy, California was a hidden gem. You know, it's kind of one of those places I sent a box to with food. And I thought it would just be like, get your box and get out. And next thing I know, I was just having a really great experience, you know, talking to this local and hearing about the history. And so I'd say that was a nice surprise. 
town with with some character, even though not a lot of people, but the, the town sounds mm-hmm. like it had, had some character. Yeah, a lot, I guess a lot of people drive through there just like take photos of the old sign and the old motel, and you know, just Route sixty six has that kind of um, tourism to it. But it, it was a cool spot. What else was there besides the motel? Um. There's like an old railroad depot. It's no longer in use. The railroad still runs through there. Um, it's literally just Roy's motel and he's got this. The motel isn't open anymore, so you can't actually stay there. Um, they sell gas and then like they have this little store that's got like the, you know, the couple of root beer and snacks stuff I was talking about. But yeah, it's pretty minimal. I guess they want to open up the cafe again because it used to be like a, like a hub. People would like stop there and it was like a place to go see. Um, but obviously when route 66 started to fade out of popularity, they kind of went under and now it's just kind of traded hands a few times as the town, but it's, it's one of the few like places where I guess it's a town that one person owns. So in the words of, of Ken, he said, yeah, we don't really have politics here because there's only one person who matters. It's the guy who owns the town. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of interesting place. Party of one. Exactly. You know, these towns, they, they pop up along, you know, main stretches of road pop you know that are heavily used and then when mm-hmm. other highways open up or other other means of transportation open up and then that that route isn't as heavily used anymore they kind of just dry up and you're, you're left with these little pockets of character uh mm-hmm. along, along the side of these seldom used roads now yeah absolutely i mean and i've been through countless like mining towns that have closed up and it's it's so interesting to see like the people that stick around and how they these places that try and reflourish and stuff like that. Um, like, like needles was a town like that. They were, I think an old mining town and they used the Colorado river to like haul supplies between needles, California and the main cities. And then as those mines started, you know, closing down, the town was going out of business and then they became like, apparently like one of the weed capital growing places of California. It's just a small town in the middle of nowhere. So it's interesting to see how these towns evolve and change. And, you know, we met some of the nicest people there and that was like a 30 mile hitch and literally just someone at a restaurant started talking to us and offered to give us a ride wherever we were going, you know, 30 miles down the road. So it was a really cool experience seeing how these towns evolve and change. Yeah, I played golf at a needles golf course one time in July. It was probably 114 out or something like that. Yeah. You have the call. I think I was was the only guy on the course. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't imagine because it's at like 400 feet elevation and it's got to get so hot, but I guess you can jump in the Colorado even in July. Yes. Now you are fresh off the winter through hike. This is the first time I've ever, I've ever heard of the winter through hike. What is that? Yeah. So I'm not surprised. It's um. so I'm actually the third through hiker to finish the winter through hike. Um. So that's how new it is. Uh, it's put together by this guy, Brett Tucker. Um. I think his trail name is blister free. He has a blog called Blister Free. And so he's the one who put together the Grand Enchantment Trail route, which is his other most known route. Um, also, the lowest to highest route is one that a lot of people know as well. And he, he just has an act for finding these crazy deserts to walk through. Um, I've heard him co- be called the, the Water Whisperer of the West. And I would say that's a good name for him because he has a way of just finding water in the middle of nowhere. And so this hike specifically, it goes from Tucson, Arizona, um, and then it ends in Joshua Tree National Park. And he also has connectors. So you could connect it to the Arizona Trail on the east side of Tucson. And then you could connect it to the PCT um, near 29 Palms. So anyone who's familiar with like the Great Western Loop where you connect the two long trails, 
this potentially could be a route that people use to make that connection because it, it has that you could um, certainly connect that and then you obviously would have some water information to go off of and so he put together this route um and he had just published it made it public information i think in like the end of december last year and i was um snowboarding in big sky montana but i was looking for something to do and i just happened to see that he had posted and made this route public um, to anyone who had hiked one of his other routes. And so I'd hiked the GET, which put me in that category. And so I got on trail like three weeks later, again, like no planning, no, there's not much to plan to be honest. I mean, you kind of just trust the guy because he puts together this water report and other hikers have commented on it, the other two before me. And it, it was a really cool experience being so early on in a route because when I did the GET from him, at that point, it, it's like that route that he put together is like over 10 years old and it's been affected a lot by fires and land management and trails being ignored by the BLM service. So it's changed a lot since he originally created it. And so I was pretty excited at the opportunity to be in the early stages of one of these routes, as well as be a contributor and help, you know, with any route information he might need, putting together some water information and then do my best to be the best steward I could as I go through these small towns, you know, because I was probably the first winter through hiker that a lot of people will ever meet. Um, and if they run into another one, they might just remember that weird stinky guy that they met, you know, this year. Um, but I was always trying to be the best example I could for those future hikers that might be coming through. Yeah. There's some pressure on you. You're, you're like the ambassador. You need to kind of pave the way for future generations of winter through hikers. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. I, yeah. It makes it sound so serious, but I, I do take that pretty seriously. Like I, I think how we interact with these towns is really important especially when you look at these towns like on the PCT or the Arizona trail, I saw some towns that you could tell were getting a lot of pressure from through hikers coming through. And obviously, you know, they want the money and there's a lot of benefits that come to these towns. But when you start seeing signs that says, you know, no bathing in the bathroom at the public park, that's, that's obviously directed at through hikers behaving, not in the most, you know, maybe a little too hiker trash. And so I think it's really important how we interact in these towns because you can see how some of these towns have turned on through hikers where at first they loved you. And then when you start getting thousands of through hikers coming through a year, it can overwhelm a community if we don't, you know, really try and be as respectful as possible. So yeah, being the first one through, you know, doing your best to look as clean as you can be and be appreciative and, you know, tipping good. I think all those things really add up um, in terms of setting a good example for future through hikers coming through these areas. Hey, Spoons, any type two fun out on the winter through hike? Um, I don't know. It was actually just amazing. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, it probably would sound like it, but we, I think I had like, I had a friend hike part of this part of the trail with me about 450 miles. Um, but we had like multiple 30 mile water carries. And I know that to a lot of people that would just sound like the worst thing ever, especially when you're also carrying five days of food and it, but it, you get pretty comfortable with that. It wasn't bad at all. Um, there was some sandy sections where you're just like sludging through sand. We would do, we would go night hiking and it seemed like whenever we started night hiking, we would just be on a sandy wash or a sandy road. And there's just something really demoralizing about being pitch black and you're walking through like inches of sand and you just feel so slow and sluggish. So I guess that was kind of bad. Um, and I thought the towns were going to be really terrible because that's what I had heard from other through hikers. Like I said, then you get to this town of Amboy where even though there's nothing really there for a hiker, it's just still a great experience. Um, and then like Needles was the same thing. I didn't have a lot of expectations and it turned out to be a great experience. So yeah, some of the towns were, were hit or miss, but I think all in all, it was a really positive hike and I enjoyed it. 
Um, the terrain's pretty manageable because with it being the winter through hike and you're hiking it in the end of end of January into February tends to be the the season Brett recommends. Um, you're kind of staying at low elevation. You're in like these low deserts between Southern Arizona and California. So you're not doing a ton of elevation gain. There's a few big climbs. I did have like one day of a snowstorm coming through and hiking through spots of like a foot and a half of snow up and over this like 5,000 foot pass. But otherwise, yeah, I don't know. It was a great hike. I really enjoyed it. I, I think it was a really magical experience to be like so early and you go through some of these wilderness areas that just like no one goes to and you just look across the valley and there's another wilderness area that you're like, who's been there? It looks so untouched. Um, and so there was quite a few of these random little places that you're just like, wow, this is, this is a magical place that very few people come to. Um, and I think there's a lot of public land out there like that to explore these places that haven't been, you know, designated a national scenic trail, but still are amazing. Yes. Now why, why the name winter through hike? Did Brett name it that way? Just cause that's the best season to hike it in. I mean, is it inhospitable the rest of the time of the year? Yeah, so I think his intention was really trying to find something else to do besides the Florida Trail. And I fall very much so in the negative category towards the Florida Trail. I don't have any interest in that. And so I think he he was looking for something. What can you do in the desert during the deep winter season? There's such few options. You know, you can't do the Arizona Trail, even though it's a desert. You can't do the PCT, even though it's a desert, just because you're still at high elevations and you'd be going over a lot of snow. So yeah, he specifically named it that with the intention of it being something you would do in the winter. You could do it in the spring, even like you could start in March, but I think you'd be getting, it'd be so hot at those low elevations. And yeah, if you tried to do this in July, August, you'd be carrying so much water and these water sources would be so dry um, that it, it would be a really tough hike. So it's very much so tailored towards the winter. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Spoons, you know where we are right now? Uh, the pro tip, maybe. Wow, you're good. The pro tip <laughs> insight of the week. That's right. What bit of trail wisdom can you share with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better? Yeah. Um, I would say so. I mentioned this a little bit earlier with just how I got a warmer sleeping bag and coming to peace with that. I'm a cold sleeper. I was cold a lot on this hike, and you know, and what do you expect? It is still winter, even in California. Um, and so. I spent a lot of time using this trick that I'd learned, I think on the Arizona trail and you sleep on, if you like wake up in the middle of the night and you've already got all your layers on and you just know you're going to be cold. If you roll over and you sleep on your stomach, it doesn't matter if you have a blow up pad like I do, or you have a foam pad or whatever you do. And you kind of like tuck your arms in and you like put your hands flat on your thighs and you lay on your stomach kind of creates this weird pocket on your chest that just like holds heat like crazy I don't understand the physics of it or how it really works, but I am telling you, it really works. So there was multiple times I'd wake up at 4 a.m. on this hike and just be like, have that little bit of a shiver that would prevent me from sleeping. And then just roll on your stomach and 10 minutes later, I'm sound asleep and don't wake up again. And it just keeps you warm. There's something about it. It just locks in heat. And my friend on this hike was using the same tactic when he got cold. And he's like, that really works. So that, that's been a huge, huge help for me over the years. Lock it in. That's a great tip. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. That's it. This episode is just about in the books. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Kyle. I want to thank him for joining this, joining us this week. Spoons, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Uh, yeah, the best place is definitely on Instagram. I'm missing underscore spoons is my handle. So I'm pretty easy to 
to find and, re- and remember, or you can find me through Kyle. Um, yeah, I take a lot of photos. I've been enjoying learning about photography as I've been traveling. So that's kind of the main place to find me. You Have you run into a lot of other missing spoons out there or even spoons? I have not. I've heard about one spoon, so no S. I've heard about him, but I've never met met this character. So as of right now, I'm in my little bubble of being the only spoons. Nice. You're kind of like the guy that owns Amboy. <laughs> yes, yeah. Just just ignorance, you know. I'm the only one. <laughs> just you. All right. Yeah. Hey, remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakamir at gmail.com. The Adventure Media Recommendation. Spoons, I'm also looking you to share a recommendation for a book, movie, documentary, some kind of outdoor media to keep our listeners connected to the trail in the off-season. We call this our Adventure Media Recommendation. What do you have for us? Yeah, um, definitely the book that I probably recommend most to people is called Vagabonding by Rolf Potts. Um, And especially if you're thinking about something to read in the off-season, it's a really good book. And I read it at a time. I read it when I had just gotten back from hiking in Japan and I got this corporate office job and was just like kind of lost and wanted to do more hiking. And it really gave my life a lot of direction. It's kind of a philosophy book about like long-term travel. And it is like a 20 year old book at this point. So some of the resources and references are outdated, but the philosophy behind it is timeless. And it's a really good read just, and it gave my life a lot of direction. And so I've, I've probably gifted that book to more people than any other book over the years. I haven't heard of that one. Vagabonding. I have to get that mm-hmm. on my Kindle. Yeah. And then the Ralph Potts, he also has a great podcast. Um, I think it's called deviate. And so he interviews travelers and stuff like that. So you could tie that in with the recommendation. So that's more modern traveling, but it's the same guy. Nice. Now, I think there's been a couple of passing references by you in terms of what you may have done in the past for for work. But how how are you currently paying the bills and financing your adventures? What uh, what do you do to to get that income? Yeah. So so when I got back from that trip in Japan, um, I definitely needed to start working, and so I started working at a trucking and logistics company, a huge corporation, kind of classic office job. Um, and I did that for about three and a half years. And the entire time that I was there, I knew I was saving up to just quit and travel. And so even though I was getting promotions and people were telling me that I was doing all the right stuff, I was you know, eating rice and beans for lunch rather than going out to eat and saving up for traveling like this. So it's all just living off savings. I kind of tell people that I'm anticipating traveling full time for three years. So I'm about a year and a half into that. And the truth is like, I might even go farther than that because the money's been holding out pretty well and I'm still having fun. So, Yeah. You knew what you were doing. You, you were working for a reason and that reason yeah, exactly. was not, not the retirement system it provided. Totally. Yeah. Okay. What have we not asked you? All right. And one last thing, Spoons, one more segment called, what have I not asked you that you're dying to tell us about? What, what did we miss today? Um, I guess we talked a little bit about like the international and U.S. thing, but not like in the sense of like a direct comparison, but so maybe something just like how they're different, just hiking, traveling internationally versus in the U.S. And um, internationally, I would say the huge advantage is the cultural experience, whether you're in Europe or Japan or whatever country you choose to travel to. That's a huge asset. But what foreign countries don't have that I find really important and I end up missing after a month or so is they don't have the public lands or the open space. So like Europe hiking is beautiful, but you're not going to go a single day without seeing another hiker. 
and very likely some infrastructure. They have a lot of these mountain huts and it's kind of cool. They have these mountain huts. You can go get a Coca-Cola at two in the afternoon when you're in the mountains. That's, you know, that's a cool experience, but you don't get that remote feeling. And so in the U S having these public lands and national parks that you can go three, four days without seeing a person, which I did on this hike every single time I left town, I wouldn't see a single person until I got back into town. That's something that you really aren't going to find in most foreign countries. Um, and also in Europe, they idolize our national park and public land systems. So it's something that we don't really appreciate here until I went overseas and saw how much people were talking about how great our system is. So I think it's a huge thing for us to appreciate that we have these protected lands and that we can go play in them and that we can go to places that are quiet because it's hard to find that in some other countries. Yeah, there is a population density in certain countries in Europe that do not does not allow for that uh, open expanse. U.S., mm-hmm, totally. hundreds of millions of people live in the U.S. I think it's close to 300 million now. Mm-hmm. But there are vast stretches of land that are just uninhabited and preserved as wilderness areas, which is mm-hmm. just incredible. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible thing. And that's one of my favorite things about being in these places. You just stop and you're just like, where is the nearest person to me right now? And it's at least 10 miles most of the time, if not longer. And I, I really value that experience. I think it's it's an Ameri- it's an incredible right that we have as an American that we've created these places that you can do that. Okay. Excellent. Well, that is a wrap from the John Freaking Mirror Studio. Any shout-outs to friends and family, Spoons? Um, definitely my grandma. She's my biggest fan. I, I, every time I call her, she just gets all giddy and is so proud of me and happy I'm traveling to her. And just like all the random people you meet while traveling from the people that you know, I, I injured my foot and I stayed with this lady for two weeks healing up my foot from like her to just like someone giving me a beer on the side of the trail. Like any of those people, they, they're a huge part of my traveling experience. And so shout out to all of them. I just love those people that they make the experience. Okay. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if the temple worker wrote something inappropriate in your Henro signature book. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck.